It's Machine Yearning from Assist. It's a podcast where we think and dream about the future of AI, the talking internet, and how we're reshaping our culture. This chapter is an excerpt from our longer conversation with Robin Sloan. Robin is a sci-fi writer, social observer, and dedicated AI enthusiast. He's been bootstrapping his way into some fascinating co-writing experiments with the machine. Since we've been talking about writing as a craft, the challenge to improve your craft was defined in a few ways. Now, as Robin Sloan is describing, machine learning, the tools and ways you have to stretch as a writer and collaborator, have changed the game, especially as we learn to collaborate with the machine. This is the essence of this podcast. Machine yearning is all about the ways we navigate a new world where identity and technology and commerce and security have to live together in ways we can't even fully imagine yet. Enjoy. I want to know more of what the tool is. Sure. Because I don't understand. I mean, I guess to take the listener there and me yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to know what is this tool? Yeah, yeah. So basically, it's and this is where, you know, it's going to kind of expose the limits of my own understanding because I'm not one of these um, machine learning researchers. But I have used the tools a lot. It's almost always, not 100% all the time, but almost always something called a recurrent neural network. And it's actually at its heart, it's kind of beautifully simple. It's a neural network that learns about patterns, about yeah. sequences. And it could do that for musical notes. It could do it for numbers and some weird cryptic series that you wanted to understand. Like maybe you're trying to model a weather pattern or something like that. It can definitely do it for text, right? Because that's just text um, is always some kind of sequence, a sequence of words or a sequence of characters. And really all it learns, I mean, you could, you could imagine if we were just doing something simple on pencil and paper, trying to come up with a model of like English we would determine really quickly that given the letter T followed by the letter H, it's very likely that the next letter is going to be E or A, very unlikely, like vanishingly unlikely that the next letter is going to be Z or Q, right? Got it. Yep. So you imagine that as a little kind of like module of statistical understanding. But the engine doesn't understand English. The, that, I mean, that's actually the beautiful thing. It doesn't understand English. Huh. On, on moment one of like training this recurrent neural network it's not like you've coded it saying okay get ready you're going to break this up into words and here's what a sentence it doesn't is even know what a word is. oh no no idea it is just like opaque data does it see the t as a line that's horizontal and a line that's it, vertical or you does know, it see the t as a letter it sees the t as a letter it sees the t actually i mean usually the way it sees it as is as a number as or as one in an array of you know, 128 potential values or 256. It's really interesting. And that's, that's the astonishing thing. Starting from that kind of really, really cold start of just having no preconceptions about language or the world and then training itself on again. And, and this is not like one short story or even one novel. I mean, to generate kind of to bootstrap this deep understanding of the structure of English and the way that people write the experiments that I've done that have to me been the most successful in terms of uh, generating the text that's been the most interesting and like the most oh. interesting to read have been all with a big body of text that I collected from public domain scans of old science fiction magazines. And so it's hundreds and hundreds of megabytes of old science fiction stories from like the 60s and the 70s all kind of glommed together. Lots of different writers, different eras, but all with that you know, that set of subjects and kind Got of it. that tone, that science fiction so tone. So apply it and then you use that how. Like you're like take you're sitting there at your computer, yeah. you're typing your fingers on words and let or you're typing your fingers on letters. Yeah. And then you have this robot that sits in your head, like and you hit robot help me. Like what Well, happens? so that's that's and for me that was the second step. It 
initially, because of course we're just using these tools that kind of researchers have developed, it's all happening on the command line. And I didn't actually see how I could write with that. It was a, it was kind of a curiosity. I'd be like, whoa, look, the computer just generated like two pages of really weird, interesting text. Uh, okay. I'm not really sure like exactly how to use that. And so I did, it was, I was riding a BART train actually, um, coming into San Francisco. This is maybe a year and a half ago now, almost two years ago, riding a BART train, coming into San Francisco, thinking about this stuff. Cause I just kind of started tinkering with it. And I had the notion that what I wanted was really autocomplete. I wanted a super creative autocomplete. I wanted to be able to start typing something myself, hit tab or some key and have this system, this statistical model of, you know, in this case, science fiction, complete the thought for me. And so that's what I ended up building. Interesting. Yeah. And so, you know, you could type, uh, the ship landed on the planet's surface. Uh, Captain Astro <laughs> stepped down and saw, and then you're like, well, what did she see? I don't know. Well, let's see what, let's see what the computer thinks. Hit tab and it'll fill it in. And huh. it, I mean, it, and it could say anything. What's good though, what's cool is that it's not garble. So how are forget, you yeah, thinking about this phenomenon? How should I think about this? What, what is, like, where is this going? Well, you know, I think there's kind of two branches for these kind of technologies. And, and when I say these kind of technologies, I guess I mean programs that have an increasingly sophisticated understanding of how we write and how text comes together and can kind of fill in the blanks in interesting ways, right? And I think, I mean, obviously autocomplete exists and is widely used <laughs> everywhere. So that's, that's- ruins my text every day. That's the, um, totally. I, I um, text sci-fi a lot, like a lot, at least a couple times a day. And uh, for some reason, autocomplete <laughs> does not figure out that I want to say sci-fi. It always says sci-do, which is not a thing. I don't understand it. Sci-do. Um, so that exists obviously, and it, and it proves that like these are going to, these tools are going to be an important part of our life lives. I think there's two branches now going forward. One is a, to me a little darker and more dystopian. The other one is more interesting. The darker, more dystopian one is a future version of Gmail where it pretty quickly understands what kind of email you're writing and basically offers to write the majority of it for you or to like make a pretty good draft of this email for you to then go back and edit and then send. That's dystopian to you. Yeah, it is. It's oh sad. yeah, it, it is. It really is. Just only because, only because I really, maybe this is just, no, I get it. you know, but it's because I think it's because of just who I am and, and how I make my living now. The idea of words that are essentially signed by a person, words that pretend to be from another human, but they're not really, they're yeah. essentially like, a form letter generated by a computer. I just think that's gross. I just think it's kind of a an insult to inflict that on another human being. When does your dystopian lapse, and you're like, "Fuck it, it's just it's just how it is," or well, does it? Well, you know, it. Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. I I have tended to focus on the way in in a way almost heading off the dystopia, and this is what I've done. Like the, in the tools that I've been building, I've been trying to sort of produce and share implementations of these techniques that are designed not to like make the world more efficient and, you know, make communication faster <laughs> and easier. Cause I frankly don't care about any of those things. Uh, but to make stuff weird, to make stuff weird. Yeah. Same to like, to kind of, to weird it up, to, to add a little perturbation of strangeness and like, uh, whoa, what did I just read? Or like, what is going on over there? Give me an the example. World? I mean, the example is in, is Give in the, some weird shit. I want some weird shit. <laughs> I should have brought, I should have brought a short story to read. Um, 
I mean, the 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 answer, the weird shit is in sort of being in conversation with these machines. And in particular, machines, this is the thing that I think a lot of machine learning people in both research and industry overlook. They focus on the engine, assuming that the thing you train it on is going to be something big, broad, generic, useful. I mean, imagine all the emails stored in Gmail or imagine a just tons and tons of like news articles from Reuters and the New York yeah. Times. This is the kind of stuff that people use. Um, as we discussed, the things that I've tended to use have been old sci-fi stories. I've done experiments where I've taken two different bodies of text, really different, like one um, kind of horror fiction and another the text, the transcripts of Supreme Court proceedings and mashed those together and told the system like, all right, learn how to generate text that fits both of those at once what? yeah and and the you goal take like republican and democrat absolutely i mean i mean like th- press releases the truth is there's a ton <laughs> there's a ton there's a ton of interesting work to be done in thinking about what we train these systems on and i think that's going to have to end up being the the kind of domain or the work of a lot of writers and artists and weird people because i just don't think google or like stanford yeah grad students are ever going to do it. They're just kind of focused on different things. The efficiency game is what it's used for today. Yeah, that's right. You're focusing on something that's, I think, way bigger, but everyone sees it as like an artistic kind of thing. Uh, But it feels like everyone in the human side of things, we're coming out of 100 years industrialization. We're like, okay, those are probably going to be lost jobs, maybe. And if so, then the only thing that matters is creativity and creative thinking. If the machine becomes creative, what happens? You know, it's interesting just to, I mean, that's a big question, a big thing. It's a big thing to think about, even to just narrow it down and and think about text. You know, what if, what if I wasn't working on tools to kind of augment my own writing or the writing of a person? What if I really was making a machine that could write a short story? And that's not implausible. I mean, there's the, the pieces of the puzzle are sort of there and you can imagine with a, with a few more steps forward, just a, a, a few kind of increments, I could imagine a system where I say, not just finish this sentence, but okay, computer, write me a short story. And it writes one and it's actually pretty good. Have you heard of the infinite monkey theorem? <laughs> yes, yes. I yes. just heard about this two weeks ago because yeah. that's Robert, yeah. my co-founder. Yeah, yeah. He's like, here's the deal. Right. If you have infinite monkeys and you give them a keyboard or typewriter and you let them just type, one of them will write a Shakespeare novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I'm like, what? what it, it's, and I read it's about right. it. I, blew, yeah. I was like, what, yeah. is, what is going on? I mean, what it, it actually, in a way, it, it loops back around because what that leaves out is that you need to identify it somehow. Somebody would have to be sitting there reading the output. This sounds like a great job, by the way. It's like somebody, somebody's <laughs> going to get, get stuck with this job, <laughs> reading the garbled output of the infinite monkeys until they're like, yes, here it is. Here's Shakespeare. <laughs> Um, at which point you're like, maybe we should have just had that person write the Shakespeare in the first place or whatever. <laughs> and I think, but I think that's important. Um, it turns out the people who are to me smartest about this stuff, and it's not just the sort of the text-based, you know, machine learning experiments. There's a lot of people doing work with images, people doing work with sound and music and all the people who seem to me smartest and most grounded, uh, about these tools, they insist that there is this super important step at the end, which is. Um, a kind of filtering or editing or curation. You essentially ask these systems to pr- produce a bunch of material. It's really weird, interesting material, but like that's not the end of the process. You, ha- you as 
an ed- as an artist, as a thinker, as an editor, have to sit there and say, mm, this, not that. We'll use this, that, we'll throw in the trash can. But it's, I guess that w- I would say that's one of my like sci-fi predictions I feel most confident about. What? Can you, can you make that prediction very clear? Yeah. In, in some number of years, I don't know if it's five, I don't know if it's 10, most text editors that people use in email, in their offices, are going to have totally augmented writing capabilities. And you're just so, tweaking it. Yeah, exactly. You're, and they're, so you're rather, the editor. You're kind, of, you're kind of building a document block by block. And then, and then, yeah, going back and making some changes or saying, oh, that doesn't sound like me. Or, but then again, maybe you just select a whole paragraph and, and press the key that means like make more friendly and it adds more exclamation marks and maybe a few, maybe <laughs> emojis. A few emojis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's, I think wow. that's, it's coming for sure. And now my email marketing software, my blog software, my chatbot software for messaging, my Alexa software, whatever is powering our language it's suggesting what it knows I already should do. Yeah. Yeah. I probably tested it too. And I'm just like, I'm more of like the legal department approving it. Yeah. And, and (laughs) I mean, in a weird way, but then, and it raises the interesting questions because of course, you know, humans, we always, we like get these tools and then the tool, the tools change us and they change our behavior and raise the question. Like then will there be this little thing where you'll write this email to your colleague using this robotic system, but then you'll put some little thing at the bottom that's the little wink of life. You know, there'll be some way of saying, Hey dude, or a little emoticon or some like secret code word that becomes evidence. Like it's cause it's something that the robot could never write. I don't yeah. know what that would be, but it does. I mean, if it's all a perfect masquerade, then some people are going to find a way to poke through or a way to undermine that system. It's going to get weird. I think it's, it's, it already seems very weird to me in the era of like Slack and everything else yeah. to work in a, a very tech kind of saturated office. I think it's just going to get weirder and weirder. <laughs> Fascinating. I was at this talk one night and it was people from IBM Watson and they were showing how they can see cancer in the photos. They can, the machine can learn if it's cancerous. They claim it was like 99% effective. The human error rate for detecting cancer was like 80%. Yet the human was required to make the decision at the end because we still trusted the human who had a worse error rate. Yeah. And then they got this huge argument. One, I think the Watson guy was full of shit, totally full of shit. But two, that's why I think he needed the human Two, yeah. the gather guy in the room was like a real scientist. And he was like, if you believed in it and the percentages are right, you're going to kill 19% of people because you don't believe in the machine. And I was like, fuck, I like blew my mind. I was like, I don't know what I would do here. There's I boy, we are going to be faced with more and more of those challenges. It is whose fault is it? It's deeply uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, I mean, I actually, I think one of the reasons this is pretty gnarly, but actually one of the reasons that, um, humans stay in the loop. And a lot of these cases is that it's not clear if there's not a human, it's not clear whose fault it is or worse for a big company like IBM or Boeing or whoever. Tesla, the people who make this autonomous software, if there's not a human in the loop, it might mean that the fault is theirs. And like, they don't want that. Yeah. Who's the insurance go after? Exactly. Exactly. Do you think think that's real? Like that's a huge, I do think it's real. Yeah. There's a, there's a phrase kind of bouncing around a little bit in kind of AI policy circles. Um, the idea of a human operator or a human, a little, little bit of human judgment as a kind of a moral crumple zone, you know, the person's the one who can absorb the shock of 
something going wrong. And it's not that we would never figure that out. There's going to be new policies and new precedents set around liability in terms of AI decisions, but um, it's super unsettled right now. And I actually think it is just easier for a lot of, for a lot of these companies and, and institutions to be like, yeah, we, it's, it's Robin. He was the one driving or he was the one who like looked at that screen and pressed a button that said, okay, I approve. The limiter to advancements in the technology is because I need someone to blame. Yeah. Whoa. I mean, that's going to change. That's going to change, but it's such early days now. It you just, know nobody knows anything. My question to you would be, take, uh, that's like a very dark version of it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but take it in a world that's, you know, uh, very politically correct today. We're politically correct, right? It's really hard to not be politically correct. Although some people aren't. And then the internet goes crazy. Do we care if robots are politically correct? Do we care yeah. if the sentence it produces? Yeah, we, I think we do. Racist I actually, or terrible I think, or I think, we, I think we, we do deeply. Um, there's, and there's two pieces of that. One is, of course, they only they only learn what they're taught. And we've seen this time and time again. Yeah. Um, training sets have, of course, you know, of course they have biases built in. They're human artifacts. They don't just kind of come from the cosmos. They are assembled, put together, and fed into the computers by people. Um, so... So to the degree that what comes out the other end of these systems is biased or weird or like privileges one group of people or one set of ideas over another. I mean, that's actually telling just telling you something about our world. It's not telling you too much about the, the machine itself. But the other thing I'd add is that, um, you know, I think it's like using a machine does not uh, free anyone, a company, an entrepreneur or an artist from these obligations to, to think about being like a responsible actor and speaker in the world. And so for instance, in all the stuff that I build at the very final, um, layer, I put in a word filter, like none wow. of these machines are ever that I create, even though, I mean, cause I don't know what's in that training set. <laughs> yeah. That's 150 megabytes of text. I didn't read. You don't have people to read your monkeys. I didn't. Theorem. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. The monkeys, the monkeys are on the loose and these are these are some old sci-fi stories too, which is, it was, it was a different time. And they're actually, there, yeah. there is some, some it's like watching ads from the seventies. Like it's not appropriate. Absolutely. Today. Absolutely. Um, and, and knowing that and, and I just being kind of mortified by the idea that someone trying one of these tools at home, kind of playing around with it would type something and then hit the tab key and then see something that was like wow. really bad, like sexist or racist or just, or just ugly in any of a number of ways. I just found that. So, to my knowledge, it hasn't happened, but just the, the vision of it is so mortifying. Um, so yeah, I built in some safeguards to make sure that that won't happen. Do you think that the safeguards are one of the most important things to be built in this space? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. I think, it's, done it. I think it's really important. Yeah. And it's just in part, in part because they just prevent weird stuff from emerging, weird, damaging, dangerous stuff. Um, and also because thinking about them is a really good habit. You know, yeah. it just is so much of it. So much of the work tends to be focused on making it work and you get, and when it just, when you see that spark of like, Oh my God, it's writing a sentence. Yeah. It's so exciting. <laughs> and, but, and so, so thinking about the safeguards makes you just kind of take those next few steps into like, okay, it works good. How is this going to work in the world? Like, how is it going to fit into a broader world? Not just my little laboratory here. And I think that's important. All right, thanks for listening. Get in touch on Twitter at Assist. DMs are open. We're super interested to hear who you think should appear on the podcast. 
Please check out the full interview with Robin. Subscribe so you never miss an episode and share this with someone who cares about how we make sense of these changing times. Machine Yearning is made by Paul Chufo and Michael Alcesser for Limina House. Have a great day.